You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us here at Holmes Avenue. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that you're here with us. We are going to continue our series in the third missionary journey, but first I want to make a note about giving. If you feel led to give, you're able to give in a variety of ways. You can give online, you can give as you exit, you can scan that QR code. It'll take you to all the fun ways you can give. As you feel led to give, I want to encourage you to give to support the mission of Holmes Avenue. What we're striving to do here, what your funds are going to do is going to support us in letting people discover who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Every dollar you give supports that ministry. And so we want to encourage you to give generously as the Lord may lead you. Now, that takes us into the title of our sermon today, which is Discovering Jesus. Now, as I said, we're going to be in the third missionary journey here, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in the coming minutes. But here I want to focus in on what I think is perhaps the most important question we see asked in Scripture, if not the entire world. This question is simply, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? As we consider this question, it's one that has been asked since Jesus walked the earth, right? Who is he? Who is this man who claims to be fully God and fully man? Who is this man who says he has the power to forgive sins? Who is this man who says that he is the way, the truth, and the life? There have been thousands of books written on this question. Millions of hours of conversation around this singular question, who is Jesus? Some would say that he's simply a good teacher. He taught us how to live morally and kindly. He showed us how we should live as people. Others would say he's just a historical person. That he lived in this world, but he wasn't necessarily anyone special. That there's this myth that has come about after his time. Still others, they would say that he's a liar or a lunatic. After all, he made claims of being God, and, and if we're honest with one another, someone said to us as we're walking down the street that they were God himself in the flesh, we might walk away a little bit faster, right? It's not a claim that people make lightly. But beyond those things, there's possible answers for who Jesus is. My question for you is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? You see, in the Gospels, Jesus asked this very question of the disciples. As he's gathered with them, he asked them this question, Who do you say that I am? And at first, the disciples begin to give some answers they've heard from the crowds. Well, you're Elijah reborn. You're John the Baptist. Who are you? Who do these people say you are? Yet Peter boldly says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You see, Jesus, in asking them this question, his point is not to hear about himself. His point isn't to learn about what the crowds are saying, but rather his question is to force them, to challenge them, to consider their level of faith in him. Will they go with what the crowds say and simply say, he's Elijah reborn, he's someone special, but we don't really know who he is? Or will they say, that they trust in the grace of God and that he is the Messiah. He is the one that they have been longing and waiting for. You say, I ask you this question 
because I want you to frame this up in your mind and let this be the central idea of our study today. Who is Jesus? Perhaps right now you have an answer that you believe in what the world might say about Jesus, or perhaps you believe in what God's Word says about Jesus. You see, in our passage today, we're going to encounter people who are in a process of discovering just who Jesus is. You see, they've heard of this Messiah, and perhaps even they trust in this idea that there is someone who can save them from their sins. Yet, they don't know who Jesus is. As we study this, we recognize the the reality that the truth, knowing the truth, makes all the difference for us in this life. Knowing the truth about who Jesus is changes everything for us in this life. And so today, as we look at these verses, we're going to discover who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, because this is a longer passage, I won't have you stand and read for us as we go. I'll read as we go, if I can. And if you're taking notes, I want you to begin with this first point, that we are discovering Jesus through demonstration. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. We'll stop right here, and I want to give us an orientation on where we're at, right? We've just jumped into the middle of chapter 18, and you're probably thinking, this is really great about Paulus, but what on earth is happening? Well, let me give you some orientation. Here in the book of Acts, this is the story of the birth of the church. We see this birth of the church through the missionary faithfulness of God's people, proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is. And we see God's faithfulness and to deliver fruitfulness to his people. We see God's grace at work and the church grows and expands. And here we're picking up in Paul's third and his last missionary journey. Transition happens very quickly in preceding verses where he ends a second and a third begins. Luke doesn't spend a great deal of time on that. Why? Because he wants to talk about Apollos. He wants to talk about what is happening in this man's life because he finds it something interesting and important for us to consider. Well, here we've met Apollos. We've heard a little bit about him and he's got our attention. Who is he? Well, he's a good public speaker. He's eloquent. He's a natural with words. He's from Alexandria. That's located in Egypt, North Africa. It's the home of an ancient library. He's a learned man. He has probably spent a great deal of time in this library. He's educated. He's wise. He's smart. He's also described as being competent or skilled in the scriptures which means he's a student of the Old Testament. These only scriptures they have at this time. You hear this name Apollos, and perhaps you recognize it. If you're a student of the Bible, perhaps you'll recognize that Paul writes of him several times in the New Testament. He writes about him in 1 Corinthians as he's encountered Apollos and celebrates the work of Apollos and his ministry in Corinth. He writes about him in Titus where he's celebrating that he will come be with him soon and that he'll be able to rejoice in in the presence of Apollos. We also hear that he's been instructed in the way of the Lord, but it's limited to only John the Baptist and his understanding. See, he's fervent in spirit, 
which means he's passionate, he's enthusiastic about the Scriptures. I want to take an aside here, and just as you're taking notes, I want to give you something to consider here. Throughout this section of Scripture, we're going to be not only discovering who Jesus is and how we discover Jesus, but I also want to give you some things that you can consider as prayer points for this new year. Some things that I encourage you to pray for, not only for our congregation, but for yourself. Here we have this man, Apollos. He's a young man, as the scripture described, who's fervent and passionate about the scriptures. If I would just ask you this, as we're considering what to pray for in this year, how to pray, should we not pray for passion and fervency about the scriptures? Should we not pray for passion for what the Lord has done in our lives? Should we not pray for this passion to be evident to those around us? See, Apollos enters in the story, and what's the first thing we see? He's skilled, he's eloquent, and he's passionate about this Messiah. That draws attention. And if you're here taking notes, I want to encourage you to just as an aside, maybe jot it on the side of your page. Simply write down, as you're praying this year, pray for passion to be evident in your life. For passion for the Lord, passion for his scriptures, passion for those that are far from him. Because that's the point of the entire book of Acts, is it not? That we would become inflamed with desire to worship the Lord and carry others with us to see his goodness and his glory. Just jot that aside. We're going to chase a few rabbit trails today, but let's get back to Apollos. Apollos is here and he is limited to just his understanding of the way of the Lord through John the Baptist. And we have to ask a question, what, what does Luke mean when he says that Apollos only knows this baptism of John? Well, it's not just a, a funny turn of speech. You see, Luke is showing us that Apollos has an incomplete view of the scriptures. I don't know if you guys can remember just from a few short years ago, before GPS units were built into your car, before you used your phone to navigate everywhere, you would have these GPS devices that you would mount into your car windshield. Do you remember that? Yes, I got a hand raised, right? You guys remember it? And my experience with those was fine, right? They knew where you were going. They knew how to get you somewhere. It was great. And I had an interesting experience with one as I'm going up 26. This is 2007, 2008. And I'm driving over 26, and my GPS starts flashing and beeping and making noise. And it thinks things are going terrible. And I think, am I about to wreck? Am I about to die? Does it know something I don't? Like, what is going on here? And it happens, right, as am I going over a bridge. And as I look over at my GPS, I see that it thinks I'm in the middle of a lake and that I am drowning. And it should call 911. Now, thank the Lord it didn't do anything crazy, right? But as I can look at it, I can see that the path it wants me to take is curving off this way. Whether it's another bridge or going around this lake, I don't know. But what I do know is that it did not know that there was a bridge right there on 26 connecting both ends of 26 over this lake. And it said, you're going the wrong way. You don't know where you're going. If you remember from those old units... You had to update them with some regularity, right? They'd get out of date, whether it's through a SIM card or you'd plug it into your computer. You had to update those guys. It just got out of date and it did not know there was now a bridge here on 26. Well, thank the Lord I did not drown. I did not drive into a lake. Okay, we're okay. But this is what Luke is pointing to. Luke is saying that Apollos, his roadmap to the scriptures is just out of date. 
You see, John came as a forerunner to proclaim that the Messiah was coming. That the baptism he offered to people was one of preparation to prepare to be cleansed by the Messiah. That this is you proclaiming to the world, I am open and waiting for the Messiah to come to deliver me from my sins so that I might experience freedom. The problem for Apollos, though, is that the Messiah has not only come, but he's accomplished his mission and he's ascended. And so now Apollos is here telling everyone that one day that a Messiah is going to come. One day a Messiah is going to come to redeem his people and set you and I free. Apollos is just like my GPS. He's not wrong. He's just out of date with his map. He's telling them to trust in this Messiah. And when he comes, he's going to make all things right. But the problem is the Messiah has already arrived. So what's to be done? Well, here in the next few verses, we see that there is a couple who is present who guides Apollos to a proper position and understanding where he's at in the story of God. Look with me at verses 26 through 28. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Now, as we enter into verse 26, Apollos is speaking boldly in the synagogue. And as we can see here from what we know, he's putting on a show that people are gathering to listen to. After all, we have Priscilla and Aquila show up, and maybe you recognize them. They're among the crowd. They're a couple that we've encountered already here in the book of Acts. See, this couple's appeared in Acts as converts who have served together with Paul. They've been converted by the grace of God. They are tent makers just like Paul. They make tents and do leather work. And they've been called to move to Ephesus to encourage a church in the city. You see, they're so committed to encouraging the church, to serving the church, that later on in the, the scriptures we see that the church even meets in their home for a time. And so Apollos has a crowd that's gathered. People have come to hear him boldly speak of the good news of the Messiah to come. Apollos and Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila come to hear. Now they hear this incomplete message, if we will, and they pull him aside to encourage him. Perhaps they shared a meal together in their home or Maybe they quietly spoke off in the corners of the synagogue. We're, we're not really sure how they did it, but the truth is, is that it is not important how they did it, but rather that they did it. Just as importantly, that not only did they do it, but Apollos took it well. We believe that he took it well simply because when he desires to go preach on this message of the Messiah, the church encourages him in his pursuit. They don't say, hey, stop, you shouldn't be a preacher because you don't know what you're talking about. They encourage him to share the good news of the gospel, to continue to use the skills that God has given him. Not only do they encourage him in this, but when he decides he wants to go to Achaia to proclaim the message of the Messiah, they not only encourage him to do so, but they write a letter to the church saying, hey, you should welcome Apollos into your midst. He's a man in good standing who has skills and gifts that will encourage and bless you. 
And he's been encouraged so well that he goes to Achaia and there he is powerfully proclaiming that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. As we look at this, before we talk about the significance of Paulus, I want to take us into one of those other prayer points, right? As you're praying this year, as you're praying for the Lord to move and work in your life and the life of others, I want to simply ask, are you a Priscilla or Aquila? Or are you an Apollos? Are you someone who is supposed to be discipling and encouraging someone? Or are you in need of discipleship and encouragement? Because if you're, an, if you're an Apollos who's in need of discipleship and encouragement, then you desperately need a Priscilla and Aquila in your life, right? You need someone who is able to encourage you, to call you out where your shortcomings are, but to lead you with grace and kindness into how you're to live this life as a Christian. But perhaps you're here and you say, well, I'm a Priscilla or an Aquila. I, I've taught Sunday school. I've led people to Christ. I have done the things the disciples are supposed to do. Then you, my friend, need an Apollos to disciple. Your work is not done simply because you have done something. Your work continues because you still draw breath. Priscilla and Aquila, they've already done great things from the church. Paul even writes that he owes his life to them in 1 Corinthians. That's how much they've done for the church. They could retire and take it easy because after all, Paul, the Apostle Paul, owes them a favor or two. Yet what do they do? Their discipleship is not over. They come to Ephesus to encourage the church, to serve it, and they hear this young man, Apollos, preaching and speaking, and they go, that man has some gifts. Let us encourage him disciple him and direct him the way he is to live so that he can be used further by God for his glory. As you're praying this year, I would just simply encourage you to write this down and ask this question. Am I Priscilla and Aquila or am I an Apollos? Do you need discipleship and encouragement or do you need to be discipling and encouraging others? Now here, as we conclude these verses, we see that Apollos received clarity on his message and he's been encouraged well. His skills and gifts from God have been honored by being strengthened through this demonstration of grace from the church in Ephesus. Simply put, the church didn't have to do this, did they? He was preaching a message that wasn't in line quite with what they knew. He was this young man from this faraway country that they had no obligation to care for. He, he wasn't a part of their flock yet. They chose to support and encourage him as they did. And in this, they found a way to clearly display the gospel of Jesus to him and to the world. I want you to think about this compelling picture of God that's demonstrated right here in the city of Ephesus. You've got this young, passionate preacher who's proclaiming of a coming Messiah He's from North Africa, so he does not look like the people of Central Asia that he's preaching to. He knows no one here. He has no family here. They could have simply said, he's a stranger. That's it. Yet what do they do? We have church leaders who hear this message. They know it doesn't quite line up with what they know, but they see God's work in his life. 
we have what some would say is a recipe for disaster. Is this going to blow up? Is it going to be an issue? No. What comes out is not a disaster, but a reflection of God's goodness and grace. They take this young man who they don't know under their wing and encourage him, correct him, and love him and serve him. Apollos, showing his maturity and his faithfulness to the Lord, takes it well. And not only does he take it well, but he's then sent out and encouraged by the church to use his gifts to bless others. You see, what we see here is a demonstration of the good news of the gospel. We see that people who are in contact with this situation, they discover Jesus through this demonstration of love and grace. What we have pictured here is a compelling community. People look upon this and say, this stranger from North Africa found a home here in Ephesus. This stranger and sojourner from far away has come home. Is that not a compelling message of hope to a lost and dying world? That though I don't look like you, act like you, think like you, I can find a family. I believe that as we study our own hearts, as we wrestle with this, one of the core things about our lives, about our very own hearts, is that we simply want to belong to something, don't we? You want to belong to a family? You want to belong to people who love and care for you? You simply want to be accepted for who you are and what you have to offer. This is a demonstration of the gospel. That when you encounter the church, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you come from, no matter what you have done, you belong here. This is the good news that is demonstrated through Priscilla and Aquila, through Apollos and their faithfulness. Now, we don't just simply demonstrate the good news of the gospel. We don't just discover Jesus through demonstration that it's a component of it. What Priscilla and Aquila did, a portion of that, what we see in the coming verses, is that we are going to discover Jesus through proclamation that we are going to be told who Jesus is and what he has done. We're going to continue in the next few verses into chapter 19. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 with me. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We've got to stop right here. We pick back up with Paul, perhaps our, our main character here in the second portion of the book of Acts. And Apollos and Paul, they seem to have crossed paths while they're in Corinth. And Paul's getting ready to head to Ephesus. And he and Apollos have an encounter. And as I've said previously, Paul rejoices at the faithfulness of Apollos to continue the ministry that Paul began in Ephesus. If you read through 1 Corinthians, Paul is encouraging the people in Corinth to recognize that I began this work because God called me there. But God then called Apollos to water this work and to bless you further. He's grateful for the work of Apollos. I encourage you, go read 1 Corinthians. You'll see all of this in there, and it's incredible to view. 
Now, Paul, he arrives in Ephesus. He encounters a, a few men who are disciples. It gives us the idea that as we read this, that they self-identify as disciples of Paul as they're talking and interacting. And we don't really know how we got here, but Paul asks them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. We're not really sure, again, why he was led to ask that question, but their answer was perhaps shocking to him. You see, these disciples, they proclaimed to him that they have never heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've grown up in church, you have probably heard of the Holy Spirit. I would dare say that even if you don't have a church background, you've probably heard of the Holy Spirit. Yet we have these random Jewish men who have no idea who the Holy Spirit is. If you've read the book of Acts with us, you've seen this clear display of the work of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. At this point in the conversation, I just imagine that Paul's jaw has hit the floor like, what are you talking about? What are you a disciple of? How did we get here? What do you mean you don't know the Holy Spirit? Well, that's exactly what Paul says. Look with me at verse 3. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they say, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. Paul asked them, what are you a disciple of? And they proclaimed that they're disciples of John. Paul understands the issue immediately. Maybe he's heard from Apollos about his story and the incomplete view of the Messiah that he has. Maybe Paul's just a genius and he gets right down to the root of the issue here. Either way, he gets into a clear explanation here in verse 4 for these men. You see, he explains that John was proclaiming about one to come. That is, that they should believe in this coming Messiah. See, just like Priscilla and Aquila, he shows them that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. Remember those prayer points I was telling you about? Make another note right on the side of your page. My hope and my prayer for this year is that we encounter difficult, challenging conversations like this where we live, work, and play. That we would have these jaw-dropping conversations of, you believe what? You mean to tell me you think that is true? And not that we would do so in an antagonistic or spiteful way, but that God would put these conversations in front of us so that like Paul, we might be able to proclaim to them the good news that there is a man named Jesus who has come to seek and save the lost, that we once were lost, that as I myself was lost, by the grace of God, I have been found. You see, my hope and my prayer is that this year we would have those messy, difficult, awkward conversations so that we could clearly proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done for you and I. You see, my hope and my prayer this year is that we would share the good news of Jesus to those we encounter. It will be messy. Your jaws will drop at some point, just like Paul's. You will ask, you believe what? But my prayer for you is you will be encouraged and strengthened to just like Paul say, let me tell you about this man named Jesus. Well, 
Paul has this conversation. He tells them about the man named Jesus. What's, the, what's their response? What's the answer here? Look at verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. <coughs> Here we have the disciples leading into rejoicing. You see, they rejoice because the Messiah has come. They've waited for many years to see the Messiah come to redeem his people, and they know that their prayers have finally been answer, answered. Consider where we are in the story, because it may seem like this is just a strange thing they haven't heard. But this moment is occurring roughly 20 to 30 years after Jesus walked this earth. These men have heard of the baptism of John the Baptist. They have heard this message, the Messiah is going to come. And they've been waiting for decades on this Messiah. Their prayers have been answered. He has come. They're baptized in the name of Jesus, and they're united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then as Paul prays over them, we see what can only be described as a mini Pentecost happen here. <clears throat> God is showing his goodness and his mercy by proclaiming his message of salvation through these men in the diverse city of Ephesus. You see, gathered in this city would be men and women from around the world. Ephesus located in what we would think is modern-day Turkey, kind of a central trading hub along the routes between Asia and Europe. People from all over the known world are here. We met a policy who's from North Africa, right? I mean, people from all over the world are here, and what does God do? He uses these men to proclaim the good news of the gospel to these gathered people in their own native tongue. So there's no way that they can leave here without hearing the good news that the Savior has come and his name is Jesus. They prophesy that Jesus has come to redeem his people. And if you believe in him, you trust in him, you'll have forgiveness in this life and life eternal. You see, this proclamation of the gospel, it leads directly into more proclamation. Look at the last few verses here. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation... He withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, meeting daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This mini Pentecost leads to an explosion of religious fervor here in the city of Ephesus. Paul is speaking boldly about Jesus in a synagogue over the coming months. People are being persuaded about who Jesus is each day that Paul speaks. The Lord is moving and working in the lives of his people. God is on the move in this city. But, but as we see in the book of Acts, wherever God is moving, moving, Satan and his forces desire to hinder that movement. 
We see Satan and his forces work through the stubbornness of some people to rest in their unbelief. Perhaps they know they're wrong, they know their shortcomings, they know their failures, but they insist that Paul is wrong. They speak evil about this message that Paul's proclaiming. They even go as far trying to proclaim this before the congregation of the synagogue because they desperately want to refute Paul and to show everyone that he is wrong. Paul does not let this discourage him. No, he simply moves on down the road to a public meeting hall. Here he continues to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus for two years. Two years His ministry is so fruitful that Luke says that all the residents of Asia have heard the word of the Lord. All the residents of Asia have heard the word of the Lord. What does Luke mean by that? Is is the entire continent of Asia, is it all made up of Christians? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, though, that Paul has made so many disciples. The church in Ephesus has made so many disciples That no matter where you go in Asia, no matter what town you go to, what city, what village you go to, what will you find there? You will find disciples of Jesus in a local church proclaiming the good news of the risen Savior, Jesus. He's saying that the earth has been filled with the glory of God through his people. Isn't this our dream for our city? If we just take a step back, right, from our own individual lives, from our church, anything like that, isn't our prayer that no matter where you go in this city, that people would have access, they would see someone who's a reflection of King Jesus? Isn't that what we want as a church? Isn't that what we want as a people, part of a kingdom of God? a kingdom that is greater than you and I, don't we desire for there be a representation of Jesus in every neighborhood, in every workplace, everywhere you can go in the city, there would be a representation of Jesus. Everywhere would have someone who follows Jesus so that the world can see the glory of the name of the risen Savior. If that's our dream, how do we get there? How do we do this? Because I hope my prayer is that you hear that and you think that's a thing that I want to see accomplished in this world before I pass. That's something that I pray would be done before I pass, that the next generation would be reached by our faithfulness today, tomorrow, and however long the Lord would give us. How do we do it? Well, this dream, this vision is only going to be accomplished if every believer values every life. This can only be done if every believer values every life. Just simply looking around our church, if we take a one-mile radius around, roughly 1,500 people live here. For us to share the gospel with every single person in this community... Individually, it would require each of us to do what? Share the gospel roughly 22 times each. 
22 times. And some of you are looking at me thinking, I don't know that I've shared the gospel 22 times in my entire life. Yet to reach this community, we have to share the gospel 22 times. If we want to reach the entire tri-county area, which is currently at 850,000 people, we would have to share the gospel hundreds of times each in order to see this community reached, this tri-county area reached. It sounds impossible, doesn't it? Yet we are not alone in this task because we serve with a kingdom just in this one-mile radius. How many gospel-believing churches are here? In this entire tri-county area, how many gospel-believing churches are here? The brutal facts are this, is that almost 90% of the people in our community are lost and going to spend eternity separated from God in hell because they do not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. At the end of the day, I'm not asking you to reach the 90, the 90% on your own. I'm asking you to reach one. Who's that one person that you know that's far from God but close to you that you can share the good news of Jesus with? See, this is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, that we are ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. Our purpose in drawing breath on this earth is to bring glory and honor to a risen Savior who's waiting to return when his people accomplish his mission of reaching the world with the good news of the gospel. And I simply tell you out of selfish motivation, I want Jesus to come back. I want him to make things right. I want there to be no more sin, no more sorrow, no more heartbreak, no more pain, no more suffering. Don't you desire this? And if I can be selfish before you for just a moment... I know the way that we get there, the way that all things are made right is if Jesus comes back. And do you know how Jesus returns? He tells us very clearly in Matthew 28. When we've reached the nations that is all people groups in the world, he comes back because his mission has been accomplished. And I simply would tell you that if you're like me, and you want that perfect day to come where Jesus reigns over the new heavens and a new earth, where things are right the way they're supposed to be, perfection has been brought back to this world, then our path to get there requires that we share. That we share the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. My prayer is that you have discovered who Jesus is today. And I would end with this question. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a risen savior that you worship and praise? Or is he a historical fact? A good teacher? A moral man? One of those has power to save. The other leaves you in condemnation. My hope and my prayer is that you would choose Jesus. If you would. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we begin this new year, we begin this year with optimism, 
with hope, with excitement, with wonder of what you will do in our lives this year. And my hope, my prayer, Lord, for each one of us is that these things would not be anchored in material things or or personal blessing, Lord, but our hope and optimism this year to be anchored in how much we can give away of the faith you've given us. Lord, that the very nature of evangelism, of sharing the good news, is that we are giving away our faith to those around us so that they might have life. We are passing to them life preservers so that they might know who you are. And Lord, at the center of all this is simply this fact that if indeed we have discovered who you are, if we have discovered who Jesus is and we believe in what he has done for us, then we must share this hope to the world. So Father, my prayer this year is that we would be overwhelmed with a passion for you, that we would desire to not only be discipled and encouraged, but to disciple and encourage others, that we would seek out these awkward, challenging gospel conversations so that we might proclaim the beauty of a risen Savior. And that, Lord, perhaps, if not this year, one day, one year to come, you might fill this city with images, with reflections of your goodness, that the people of God spread all over your city, all over the tri-county area, would be reflections of your goodness and glory. That no matter where you go in this city, you would encounter a disciple of Jesus. Lord, our prayer is that there would be a decreasing number in our community. That each year, less and less people would be lost. That each year, more and more people would know of a risen Savior whose name is Jesus and has come to make all things right. Lord, I believe that if we are faithful to this task, you will bring fruitfulness. So Lord, let us be as the church in Acts. Let us rest in the great, powerful name of God. Let us rest on the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. And let us trust in the power of the Spirit to change hearts and minds around us. Lord, convict us of our sin. Show us the path to righteousness. And Lord, lead us to glorify you by proclaiming the good news of a risen Savior. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.